here's one that I, I teach and I put I wrote wrote about this in the book Leadership Strategy and Tactics, which is um, I call it reflect and diminish. So if you come to me and you're all angry about something and your 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 voice is elevated and you're starting to get emotional about something, well if I just say, Hey, you need to calm down, that that's not that's not a move, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't help. In fact, now what I just did was created a divide between you and me. And now you think I'm on the opposite team. You know, I'm opposing you because you, you don't even, you know, you're thinking, I don't even understand how important this situation is. So what I do is I, I reflect some of your emotion. So you come in, I can't believe the ops team didn't get this stuff delivered on time. I don't say calm down. Instead, I say, are you serious? Well, how late is it? So I show you some of that same emotion that you're showing me, but I diminish it a little bit. So I reflect some of your emotions, but I d- diminish it a little bit. So now you, you think to yourself, oh, cool, Jocko's on my team. Hello and welcome to season two of the Not Almost There podcast. I'm your host, Joe Chura, and I cannot believe I just said season two. Where does the time go? I'm extremely proud to say last year we published 52 episodes. We had some incredible guests and so many lessons shared and learned along the way, but none of this would have been possible without you. So I wanted to start this episode with gratitude. Thank you for all of the downloads, shares, subscribes, and forwards to friends and family members and for starting this Not Almost There community with me. Of course, thank you for providing feedback to me personally. This year has really made me understand the power of conversation. So with that in mind, for season two, I wanted to make sure I continue to get the best guests and content for you. But I also realized I need to give more time in between episodes to take these ideas and to turn them into practice. So there will be two episodes a month to provide the space we need to help make these lessons work toward our goals. It's one thing to take in content, but quite another to put that content into action. So let's get to it. I want to start this season out with a punch, or maybe I should say chokehold. And who better to do that than the man, the myth, the legend, Jocko Willink. Jocko is a former Navy SEAL commander. He's been in the SEAL teams for 20 years. He's a best-selling author of 10 plus books, an entrepreneur with several businesses spanning from clothing to energy drinks to leadership training and so much more. It may seem like a ton for one person to handle and we talk about this in the show, but Jocko leads by example and puts into practice what he preaches, like decentralized command, which we also get into in the podcast today. We filmed this in my jiu-jitsu gym in Naperville, BJJ Labs, thanks guys, where after our podcast, Jocko led a self-defense class using jujitsu for first responders. It was incredible. So needless to say, this episode is a must listen. Jocko shares stories and insights he has learned from being in the Navy SEALs and as a consultant working with businesses. Our conversation includes a story that I'm still thinking about, and that is how you deal with someone coming at you hot. And I think his insight was spot on. You just heard a little bit of it in the intro. So let's get to this. Get your shoes on. Head outside. I know it's cold, but you can do it. And please enjoy this conversation with Giacco. Welcome, Giacco, to the Not Almost Third podcast. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to uh, to be with you today. I, I know we had dinner last night, and the one thing that I completely forgot to mention is to thank you for your service. 20 years uh, in the in the SEALs is is amazing. And um, and I just can't thank you enough for, for everything that you've done for us as uh, as Americans and the military and and your your leadership. It's incredible. 
Well, it was an honor to be able to serve, but thank you. So I guess going back a bit, when did you know that you wanted to be in the military? I don't remember wanting to do anything else. So birth. When did you realize that you had, like, was there a defining moment in your life when you realized you had a, uh, let's call it a knack or a gene for leadership, not seems like you were a natural born leader. Was there a, I mean, I guess, first off, would you agree with that? Or was that something that you were, you were taught early on? I would say I just slowly evolved towards leadership, you know, um, in the military for sure. In the SEAL teams, I, I, I evolved toward it. I figured out some things when I was younger, very lucky to figure those things out. And once I started figuring those things out, they sort of snowballed into learning and understanding some other things. And from there, eventually, yeah, I moved it up into a leadership position and that's sort of been my life. So so when you go back to like high school or even pre-high school, were you a leader in your school? Were you a leader amongst your friends? Like, or was it something that evolved when you were in the military? I'd say I have some sort of propensity to step up if there's something that's going on and people need direction. I'll kind of step up probably because I lack uh, any other real skills. You know, I was never the fastest, was never the strongest, was never the smartest, but I could kind of look at a situation and step back and try and figure out what to do and usually come up with an okay idea of what to do and not bad at making it happen. And so that's kind of been something that I've always had a natural propensity to do. Yes. Did you have someone that you looked up to when you grew up? I would say most of my role models came once I got in the SEAL teams. And those are people that taught me both what to do and what not to do. Some of the role models I had were just horrible leaders, and I, they taught me a lot about what not to do. And then I had some really awesome leaders that I tried to emulate. Yeah. Yeah. When you said you, you were trying to, like, figure things out and you figured some things out and then that snowballed, do you remember any defining moments, like, early on when you figured something out? Yeah, absolutely. I wrote about all these sort of defining moments in a, a book called Leadership Strategy and Tactics. And one of the first things that I sort of remember learning or kind of almost accidentally uncovering was the ability to detach, take a step back, look around, see what's happening, and then make a decision. And just happened to be on a training operation and for whatever reason, no one else was making a decision, including my, my leadership in my, inside my platoon. And they were all staring down their weapons, looking for targets. And I was waiting for a call to be made and waiting for a call to be made and waiting for a call to be made for 20, 30, 40 seconds. And finally, I just took a step back off the skirmish line, looked around and made a call as a new guy, which is not very normal to make a call as a new guy, but I did it. And when I did that, everyone executed the, the call that I had made. And I tried to figure out when I got done with that, with that iteration of training, why was I as a new guy able to figure out what to do when my leadership didn't make a call? And I realized it was because I took a step back and looked around. And so once I realized that I started doing it all the time and it's very beneficial. It's almost like cheating. <laughs> so that, so I, I know recently, um, you have a wonderful online course, uh, Extreme Ownership. You changed the name recently from, from Echelon Front to, to the Extreme Ownership course or school. Mm -hmm. 
the, uh, the OODA loop is something that you mentioned recently and that, that to me, that's the first step, observe. Can you touch on that? Like when you learned that and was that part of it when you finally realized it? Yeah, that, that's, the, that's what you're doing when you take a step back and look around, right? I mean, I guess they use the word observe in the OODA loop and I use the word look around. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the same thing. I was just, when I was younger, the best term I could come up with was look around. So I used to say look around and, you know, observe, orient, decide, and act. So observe, look around, and then you've got to orient, figure out what, how you fit into this picture. And then you decide what you're going to do. And then you go execute that thing. So yeah, OODA loop. I, I mean, I started teaching the OODA loop probably, well, when I was still in the SEAL teams and still teach it now. Yeah, it's an effective tool for sure. And was that derived from, from fighters, in the, from uh, jet fighters? Yep, yep. Colonel John Boyd, he was a fighter pilot. And I think they called him like 60-second Boyd or 30-second Boyd or something like that because he would always win these, these firefights very quickly or gunfights or dogfights, I guess, is the correct term. He would win them because he was good. And he figured out that getting inside the enemy's OODA loop was the way to, that you make that happen. And when you, when you talk about observing, like this can be for like micro moments or as long as it's a chance for you to understand what's, what's going on or is it over a longer period of time typically? I mean, when you're, in a, when you're in a jet fight, I imagine it's pretty quick. Yeah, it's pretty quick. I, I talk about it from, from the perspective of everything. And when you allow yourself to be caught up in the moment and you you know if you and i are having a discussion and you start to get mad and then i let my emotions start to get mad back at you and all of a sudden we're escalating the situation well it's not going to end up well and we're not going to come to any kind of conclusion we're not going to find any common ground we're not going to find any compromise and how to agree so what i need to do is oh i'm starting to see you get mad i start to feel myself getting mad so i need to detach take a step back say oh yeah, he's getting upset with me right now. How do I de-escalate this so we can have a good conversation and move forward? So it's, for me, it's everything. It's in every situation. So do you remember a recent time in your life where things, things escalated? I mean, it seems like now with your stature, um, at least from my observation, it could be completely wrong. Like you wouldn't be getting into escalations that you might have when you were younger as a was there a recent situation that you had to use use this no i mean it's it's when you start doing this all the time it becomes very habitual mm-hmm. and i'm not going to get emotionally excited or angry or anything like that about something because i already know what the what that results in so i always joke that i usually the only thing i get mad at are printers and copy machines so <laughs> um yeah, that's the only thing I really get mad about these days. So going back back a little bit, so you're in the SEALs. How, how was it, how did you go from being um, SEAL candidate to then eventually becoming a commander? What, over what period of time did that happen in? Well, I, <clears throat> I enlisted in the Navy. And then I was an enlisted SEAL for eight years. And then I got picked up for this program called the Seaman to Admiral program. And then I went to officer candidate school in Pensacola, Florida, got commissioned as an officer and then went to SEAL team two and I was an officer. So it happened in 13 weeks to be quite frank with you. 
And then once you're an officer, I continued down that, that officer path until I retired. And how did things change at that point with regards to, did you automatically feel more responsibility or is it something you were just ready for because you, you gradually um, started to, to take on that role? Like, like you giving an example of you stepping up as a leader, was it much different than when you became an officer? You know, the SEAL teams and the military in general, I think it's, there's, the leadership can come from anywhere inside of a platoon. And if you've got good leaders at some level, the platoon will be successful. If you don't have good leaders at some level, the platoon will not be successful. If you have bad leaders at the top, that can ruin everything because then they might override sort of some subordinate leader that's actually making good decisions. So... I think when I, when I became an officer, I didn't really view it as very much different. I, I kind of did what I always did. Obviously, you are ultimately responsible. And so when you're ultimately responsible, even though I might take someone else's suggestion, I, I own that suggestion now. And that's pretty much the way I, I always led by not leading, you know, leading with minimum force required. And having the team come up with a plan, having the team come up with the way we're going to execute things, having the team come up with standard operating procedures. And then I sort of just oversaw those things and made sure we kept moving in the right direction and kept moving towards executing the mission. Was there a, a moment back then when you, um, when you saw a, a really good leader in operation? Um, obviously, you, you talked about the story of the, the bad leadership and you having to step in and make that call. What was the moment when you saw a really good decision and a really good leader and who was that? I had a, a leader that I worked for who was a platoon commander who was not good and we ended up having a mutiny and we, he got fired. And then fortunately, uh, the best leader I ever had came and replaced him. And so I was able to learn and see the contrast between a really bad leader and a really good leader. And that was very beneficial for me. And there wasn't like one decision that this, that either one of these guys did that I say, Ooh, that was terrible. Or, Ooh, that was great. It was their entire being that sort of, cause look, no one's perfect. No one does everything perfect all the time. And usually people aren't all bad and they do some things that aren't all bad, but overall their, their attitudes were very contrary to each other. One of them being, one of them being quite arrogant and egotistical and the other one being very humble and open-minded. And the one that was humble and open-minded was the far vastly superior leader. And that's what I always try and emulate. I know you, you talk a lot about in your books as well, extreme ownership. There's, I, there's amazing stories of, um, the battle, the battles that you were in, in war and how you learned a lot of leadership tactics, um, during that, those times of stress. Is there one that sticks out to you? When you're in a leadership position, you're leading all the time and therefore you're making constantly making decisions. And when I say making decisions, I don't mean making decisions like, Oh, move left or move right or assault this building. Sure. You make those decisions and those are, you make some good ones. You make some bad ones. You do your best you can in the scenario that you're in. Uh, but, you know, you're making a decision all the time. You're making a decision how you interact with other human beings. 
you make a decision about what words you're going to use, you make a decision about what facial expression you're going to give your team. So you're making decisions all the time. And as far as there being one moment in time, I, I think I, for me, I've much more evolved over time with small iterative steps, not, you know, big radical movements that happened overnight. You know, even in the book, Extreme Ownership, in the opening chapter, I talk about taking ownership for a fratricide out on the battlefield because I was the guy in charge. But that wasn't the first time I ever took ownership at all. That's, and I wasn't the first person that I ever saw take ownership. And this was not a unique attitude that I had made up. This was something that the good leaders that I worked for always did this. And the bad leaders did the opposite. So it wasn't a epiphany when that happened. It was, it was a standard movement down the same trajectory that I'd always been on. So I know it's not good podcast um, uh, material to say there's no one moment in time where this all changed my life, but that's the reality. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So now you work with, I guess I should ask, how many businesses do you work with like on a yearly basis or how many have you worked with? Do you keep track? I don't keep track, but it's a lot. Yeah, it's, I it's, figured that. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> And I guess to explain to the audience, and pretty much I would think anyone watching this knows you, but they may not know all the businesses that you're involved in because you're involved in a lot. I want to get into that in a few minutes. But for the, for the leadership training business, when you go into a corporation, what, is that, what does that entail? So, yeah, I have a company called Echelon Front, and what we do is leadership consulting, and we have a whole wide array of the way that we execute those missions. Everything from just going in and working a one-day workshop with a company or a half-day workshop with a company all the way up until we've been embedded with some companies for two or three years. Normally, it's interesting, here's an evolution. In the beginning, I, I was telling companies, hey, look, we don't want to work for you for, for three years. If, if it takes us three years to train you, then we're not doing a good job and we're not being effective. But now, I mean, very quickly, we started working with companies that were growing very quickly, either through just organic growth or they were acquiring other companies. And so they, we, we've de developed relationships with companies where as they grow, we help bring new people on board and teach them these principles and keep everyone aligned. So, so we do everything from very short, very short uh, events to, like I said, up to two, three years going in embedding ourselves with the companies and working with them and getting their leadership aligned. And when I say leadership aligned, I don't mean we don't go in and say, oh, company, hey, company, where are you going? Are you all moving in the same direction? That ends up being a byproduct of what we teach. What we actually get people aligned with is how they're going to lead and how they're going to interact with each other and how they're going to interact with their with their peers and their subordinates and their superiors. So we, we get people aligned from a leadership perspective and leadership is the solution to all problems in, in, any, in any organization. When I've been through, been through so many problems with companies and it's always a leadership problem, always. Whether it's, oh, we're having trouble balancing the P&L. Okay, well, guess what? You've got leaders that aren't paying attention to the money that's coming in and the money that's going out, or we've got processes that don't work. Okay, well then you've got leaders that are allowing processes to be in place that aren't, aren't functional. 
or we've got people that aren't doing their job. Okay, well, then you've got leaders that are in there that are allowing people to not do their jobs or they're taking the wrong people and putting them in the wrong positions. So no matter what is the, no matter what the problem is, leadership is the solution. And so that's what we teach. We teach leadership. So you got it. You got to tell me though, your first, do you remember your first engagement in, in the business world? Yes. Can you touch on that without obviously talking about the, the company and how that was? So a, a, a guy that I knew was the CEO of a big company and he asked me cause he knew I, he knew I was in the SEAL teams. He didn't really know what I did. And, and a lot of people don't really know what happens in the SEAL teams or what's going on in the SEAL teams, but he just wanted me to come up and talk about. I don't even know if he specifically, he wanted me to talk to his executive team about leadership. And so I went up and I gave them the, basically an unclassified version of the leadership principles that I would teach to the young SEALs. And when I got done, <laughs> well, I, we did Q and A and immediately, as soon as the first question got asked and I answered it, I realized that every, leadership principle that I knew applied to the, the, to the business world and to really any leadership situation. So that was within, within 30 seconds of the first question I got asked, I said, Oh, I, I see what's going on here. All these things that I've just been teaching for the last, however long I've been in the military, they all apply. And when I got done, the CEO came up to me and said, I want you to come and talk to every division of my company. And I said, well, you know, I'm getting ready to retire. And he said, I'll pay you. And I said, well, okay. And then at one of those divisional meetings, the CEO of the parent company was there. And this guy owned 45 or 50 companies. And he said, I want you to come and talk to all my CEOs. And he put together a CEO summit and I went and talked to them. And then all those people wanted me to come and talk to their companies. And then it just grew. So yeah, I remember it. It was, it was uh, very interesting. And it was very, it was very, uh, I was very happy that, that what I had learned was directly applicable in the civilian sector. And then had to make just a very smooth transition from your, from your career. It did indeed. Yep. That's, I retired on like a Friday and was embedded in a company on Monday. Do you remember what that first question was? Yeah, it had something to do with, it had something to do with sales and operations and sales and operations not talking and not communicating with each other. And I s said, oh, so they don't cover and move for each other and they don't support each other and they don't have relationships. And if you don't have relationships, you can't, you can't give proper support and you can't expect proper support. So that's what the problem is. We, we have to build some relationships here in between departments instead of just pointing the finger and saying, oh, sales didn't sell enough and operations didn't deliver enough. And that's not my fault. No, actually, how are you informing operations of what's required and what's necessary and what's needed and when it's expected? And is operations setting the right expectations on what we can deliver? And if we're not doing those things, then we're going to fail. And by the way, when, when operations fails to deliver, it's not just operations that fails. Sales fails now too, because now we've got a bunch of clients and customers that are angry and aren't going to recommend us and aren't going to uh, continue to, to work with us. So it's not just one part of the team that fails, it's the whole team that fails. It, it's fascinating because my, uh, I think, you know, maybe a little bit about my, my company, but we have 800 employees now. It's grown from nothing. And we have that same problem sometimes where we have sales and we have operations and we don't, 
uh, we don't get paid until operations does their job, but sales has to sell it first. And what I found over time is that there's a lot of um, generalizations made when something's going wrong. I'm sure you've seen this where someone would say like sales is doing this as, as if sales is a person or operations is doing this. And I'm like, whoa, 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 stop. Like, give me an example. Like who's doing what in sales? Cause it's not just all of sales. And I'm, I'm wondering from your end, like, what did you do then? So you understand the problem. What were the first steps into helping them understand how to fix it? Yeah. Well, it's, it's again, it's uh, breaking down the, the specific situation that people are in and starting to, starting to get more granular with what's happening. And it's basically, a, a, you just said the same thing, right? Which is, hold on a second. You're telling me that this whole organization, this, this, this inhuman organization of sales or this inhuman operations of, of uh, organization of operations, you're telling me that that is the way they're functioning. And do you think that that organization wants to let you down? Do you think that that's what they're trying to make happen? So... Do you think that the operations wakes up in the morning and says, hey, how can we let down sales today? And, and you think sales goes out and says, hey, how do you think we can overpromise to our clients on what can actually be delivered? Is, it, is there anyone that thinks that that's what's happening? No. So what we have is a lack of relationships, a lack of communication so that no one knows what's actually happening. And if we don't know what's happening and we're not communicating about what's happening, we're going to fail. So let's build some relationships and let's learn to communicate with each other. So when you say let's build relationships, what, what is that? Obviously, I know what that means, but like, how does someone start doing that? How does a department do that? Do you have an exercise for that? Did you get people together? Do you? Yeah. So we have a bunch of we have a bunch of exercises that we do, but obviously, this question of well, what's a relationship comes up all the time. And so, for me, what a relationship? There's a there's several, there's a bunch of different components to a relationship, but relationship for me, there's a, a couple key components, and what I want to do is build on those key components. Some of them might be like uh, respect. So if I treat you with respect, then, and you treat me with respect, well, that's the beginning of a relationship, right? If I don't treat you with respect, well, then we don't have a relationship. Trust, if I trust you, then, it, and you trust me, we have a relationship. If you don't trust me and I don't trust you, we don't have a relationship. Listening, so if I listen to you, that's a part of a relationship. If you listen to me, that's part of a relationship. And influence. So if, if you allow me to influence you, then that means, and, and I allow you to influence me, then that means we have a relationship. So in order to take ownership of that, in order for me to get you to listen to me, the best way for me to do that is actually to listen to what you have to say. And the best way for me to get you to be influenced by me is to allow you to influence what I'm doing. The best way for me to get you to respect me is for me to treat you with respect. The best way for me to get you to trust me is for me to start to trust you and maybe give you some projects, you know, a small project and say, hey, can you handle this for me? And then you get it done. And now I can give you a bigger project or give you a bigger tasking. And over time, we build, we build trust. And by the way, when you don't complete the project on time. Instead of me flying off the handle and yelling at you, I say, hey, what better support can I give you that you could maybe get this thing done on time? How, what, where, where did I fall short on this? How, did I not explain the deadline? How can I do this better? And you see that I'm not hanging you out to dry, which means that you start to trust me and we start to build a relationship. So those are some of the things we talk about when we talk about building relationships. That's uh, great advice and 
fascinating in the sense of just building that trust and like how to take action with regards to that. I have to know though, when you were, um, when you're diving into these businesses are, the, and it seems like from, from your purview, there's a lot more things common from the military than different, but was there some themes emerging from corporate America or, or maybe not even corporate America, small startups, businesses that surprised you? The biggest surprise for me was that there was no big differences. So, and I'll, I'll, there's a, here's a good example. When you're in the military or in the SEAL teams specifically, you think, well, people would say to me, well, you know, you know, Jocko in the SEAL teams, if someone's not doing their job right, you can just get rid of them. And that's actually completely untrue. And what you have to do is you have to put documentation in place. You have to counsel them. You have to go through this whole rigmarole to get rid of somebody. And I used to think when I was in the military, oh, you've got someone that's not doing their job. You just fire them. If you're in the civilian sector, you can just fire people. And obviously we know in the civilian sector, that's not true either. So that there's an example of where both sides of the fence perceive that something is completely different on the other side and it's not. And it's the same with all of it. It's, it's all the same. Like, oh, you know, another one's like, oh, you just, you know, when you're in the military, you can just tell people what to do and they're just going to listen. It's completely false. I mean, that's, it's not any more true than it is when you are a leader in the civilian sector and you say, Hey, I want, I mean, we, we work with people, we work with companies all the time where they can't get the front line to do what they need them to do. Okay. And it happens in the military too. Oh, you can't get the frontline troops to do what it is that you need them to do. So it's not as simple as barking orders at people and then everyone follows the orders. If that's what the military was like, military would be the easiest job in, easiest job in the world. Same thing with the civilian sector. If you just said, oh, well, if someone doesn't do what I tell them to do, we'll just fire them. Oh, oh really? Cool. How many employees do you have? The answer is zero. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so have you seen a shift over time now that because you've been working with businesses for many years now and Obviously, we're in a different world today than we were even five years ago. Um, have you seen a sh shift when it comes to responsibility, accountability, or the way that leaders can talk to their employees? It seems like that has been a lot more, became a lot more sensitive than, than it used to be in the past. I, if, if, as far as I'm concerned, talking to people has always been there's, there's, it hasn't changed. Um, and there's a good way to do it and there's a bad way to do it. And if you treat people with disrespect, it's bad. And if you bark orders at people, it's bad. And if you don't listen to what they have to say, it's bad. And that is, that hasn't changed. And that was what it was like when I was in the military, when I was 18 years old. And that's the way, the same way I see it now. I don't, don't teach anything different. And I don't, I don't view anything differently. Some people might get more mature and realized that when they were younger and thought that they had some rank or some positional authority over somebody that that actually counted and that that actually was a, 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 a legitimate way to lead was to say, hey, I'm in charge here, so you shut up and do what I tell you to do. Sure, there's people that are idiots that go through life like that and they still exist. So for sure, but I don't think it's any different Maybe it's not different from the way you, you say it, but do you think there's a different lens folks are putting on to the way they receive it? 
information and feedback versus before? Do you think it's, it's been pretty level the last five years? Well, again, for me, my whole life has been, there's been people, there's been leaders that are authoritarian leaders that yell and bark and, and don't listen and aren't humble enough to pay attention to what their subordinates are saying and they're not good leaders and they never were. And that's, that hasn't changed as far as I, as far as I could tell. Uh, and even, even when I, you know, I, I read a lot of books, I read a lot of historical books, I read a lot of military books and the military leadership is the same way. It's always been the same way. You go back to any of these um, leaders from past combat scenarios the good leaders were the ones that paid attention to their troops, listened to what they had to say, understood that there was morale issues and what to do in those situations and how to back off sometimes and how to, how to not impose their will on their team. So this stuff, it, it really hasn't changed. No, I, I, I don't see a lot of that. Taking a sidestep for a second, is there a, a book that really resonated with you? About uh, Face by Colonel David Hackworth. When did you read that in your career? I don't actually know when I read it for the first time, but I got it at some point. And the book is, well, it's, I mean, it's my favorite book, but it's, it's not supposed to be a leadership book. It just talks about David Hackworth's career. He was in the Army, and he was in the Army for a long time. He enlisted in the, I think he was, it, he was very, very young when he enlisted in the Merchant Marines. He was like 15. And then he got into the Army at the end of World War II, missed World War II, but he was in the Army, sort of learned from the World War II vets over in Europe. And then he went to Korea, went to Vietnam. He was a career soldier, highly decorated, one of the most highly decorated soldiers of all time. And at the end of his career in Vietnam, he did an, a famous interview where he's the first senior leader in the military that said if we don't change the way we're fighting here we're going to lose and then he got drummed out of the army and kind of kind of um was shunned for many many years by the army because of because of what he did and so i read that book and there's just incredible amount of leadership lessons in there and everything i'm talking about like the way he treated his troops the way he listened to what they had to say he did all that stuff and he was don't 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 get me wrong he was a hardcore guy and and it just he was he was a, a lifer soldier leading draftees in vietnam no harder workforce to lead than draftees in vietnam and he loved his draftees and they loved him so so that's a book that had a big impact on me and and i actually ended up writing the forward for that book uh for the re-release when it came out it was like maybe two years ago yeah great and speaking of a forward, and I want to get into jujitsu a bit. We're in a jujitsu gym now. You found jujitsu in the '90s, right? That's yep. when you started training. Can you? Um, and you wrote the forward for uh, Hickson's book, uh, "Breathe," which is phenomenal. Like just full of uh, full of stories of uh, Hickson Gracie and what I have, what I've learned from practicing jujitsu, and you've obviously known for decades is uh, uh, how breathing is important, how it teaches you how to, to relax under pressure. I mean, that's, that's the first thing I realized when I was getting choked out is like, just relax. And, and uh, I'm just curious, like, it seemed like that was a fitting time for you to, 
take up that practice and how has that impacted your leadership and how has that impacted the way you conduct yourself? Jiu-Jitsu's impacted, it's, it's probably the most important thing that I've done in my life because Jiu-Jitsu was, the, was what started to allow me to connect the dots and see the correlation and the relationship between a bunch of different things in the world. The, bu- the bunch of different things that I'm talking about is leadership, combat, and fighting. And, and if they're just all so interrelated that once I realized that it, was, it really helped me move forward and pr- progress in all these different arenas. So for instance, when you are on the battlefield, if you, there's an enemy position, you don't attack that enemy position head on. You instead maybe distract them from head on, but then you move around to the flank and take them. In jujitsu, if you want to get someone's arm, you don't grab their arm, you actually grab their neck, and then as they defend their neck, you, you go for their arm, you have to set them up in leadership and interacting with other human beings. If someone has a big ego, you don't attack their ego. Instead, you you talk to them and you figure out a way to come around the flank and bypass their ego. So they're, they're all just interrelated and that's one example. And the examples just are, they just go on forever. So once I realized that, that these skills on the mat applied in all these different arenas of life, I just started to try and apply what I know from jujitsu to everything. And it's, it's been a, a huge impact to the way that I think. Can you tell that story? I thought it was so fascinating when you were, you were talking about, uh, it was a leader in the military. I don't know if he was a Navy SEAL, um, it, this this is a story you tell in the forward to uh, Hickson's book, and you talk about when you first realized the power of it and how he was able to just. I think he he I don't want to say took down, but like five five of you guys like came at him, and he was systematically like making everyone tap over a long period of time. Yeah, this was a guy named Master Chief Steve Bailey, and he was like a probably a mid level white belt at the time. This is like nineteen ninety two or nineteen ninety three. And at that time, if you were a mid-level white belt, you were not going to lose a fight because you had magic knowledge that no one else had. And we didn't all attack him at the same time because even, I mean, five young SEALs going at someone is going to be a real challenge for anybody. I don't care who you are. But, you know, he just lined us up and just tapped us out over and over again. And I realized that this is something I need to know. And then when, when did you meet Hickson? Uh, I, I trained with, I went to Hickson's Academy in the mid nineties and just stayed up there for like a week. And that's when I met him. I think that's when I, I might've met him before that, but that's when I kind of, that's when I rolled with him and trained with him and talked to him for the first time. So yeah, that was the mid nineties at his old Academy on Pico street in Los Angeles, California. And how'd you even find out and discover that world back then? Even there's some. Well, that, that Master Chief that I talked about, Master Chief Steve Bailey, he, he had been training with the Gracies up in the Torrance, you know, the legendary Torrance garage in the garage in the late 80s and early 90s. And so he introduced 
myself and, and several other SEALs, young SEALs to jujitsu. And then one of my friends, Jeff Higgs, when we got back from that deployment, he found a guy named Fabio Santos in San Diego and Fabio had a, had a school and Jeff started training there all the time. And then one day Jeff came to my house and said, hey, you wanna train? And I hadn't trained since what I had learned from, from Master Chief Bailey. And I was like, yeah, let's go. I went over across the street in the grass and started rolling and Jeff tapped me out 500 times. And I said, what are you doing? How do you, how do you know this? And he said, yeah, I found a jujitsu instructor. And I said, give me the address. Is it open right now? And he said, it's not open today, but you can go tomorrow. And then I went and signed up for classes with Fabio Santos and I trained there twice a day for a long time. Does it uh, surprise you the way jujitsu has taken off since? No, no. I think it's just so fun and challenging and and practical that doesn't surprise me at all. Did you try other martial arts before it? No. It was just you just knew it when you saw that 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 master chief. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know I grew up and did a lot of fighting growing up, and you know all the fighting that I did growing up was just idiot fighting you know, big street brawls and big sort of just melees. And so I had, that's sort of what fighting was to me. It was just like a gang fight. Hey, we're all just going to hit each other and gang up on each other. And if you get ganged up on, you're going to lose. And if you gang up on other people, you're going to win, um, you know, hit first, those kind of principles. But I didn't have any kind of training at all. And, and that's why when I saw that you could actually train this stuff and you could learn it and it was applicable. So, so it's very similar to leadership. And that's one of the things that people don't realize. People almost have the exact same feeling about leadership that they might have about fighting, which is, well, you know, I've got, they, they sort of understand that there's this instinctual part that, that, oh, well, if someone did this, I would hit them here. And you have this instinct and people have that instinct about leadership too. Oh, well, you know, if I'm in charge, I'll do this. And it's wrong. It's actually just wrong. And so jujitsu and leadership are so similar in that respect that people don't realize. People don't realize that there's moves you can do to subdue your opponent without much effort at all. People don't realize that there's moves you can do from leadership perspective that can help you get your team on board with what you're doing with very little effort, with minimum force required. People don't realize that. And that's why it's it's awesome to be able to teach both these both these uh, both these disciplines: the discipline of of jujitsu and the discipline of leadership. When you were uh, learning jujitsu, when did you realize the importance of breathing? The thing that I realized, and as I look back and reflect on on my time of trying to stay calm, which is very important. What what I joke about this now, but when you talk on the radio in the military and, and even more so in the SEAL teams, if you sound panicked or emotional, it's part A, it's gonna be bad for the situation because you're probably gonna talk too loud for your radio and blow out your mic and, you know, so it just comes over garbled and everyone else is gonna hear that you're panicked and emotional and it's gonna make some people get panicked and emotional as well. But more important was even more a driving factor for me is everyone's going to make fun of you later. 
if you talk like that on the radio. So I always was very cautious that when I keyed up the radio to say anything, I did it in a very calm voice, which means before I keyed up the radio, I would take, I would make sure I had, you know, took a breath to calm down. And that when you do that, that calms you down. When you slow down and you slow down your breathing, it calms you down. So I think it was just luck for me that as I tried to maintain a calm voice so I didn't sound panicked, that I always took a breath and that forced me to calm down anyways. So I think I just got lucky in that respect. But, but you know, when we would, what we would do with guys to train them is put them in very hard situations. And again, I would do the same thing. If someone's starting to yell and scream, I would record them. And I would just I carry a voice recorder with me when I, we were out on training operations, when I was in charge of training, I would carry a voice recorder with me. And when these young SEAL leaders would start freaking out and yelling and screaming, I'd just, I'd just record them. And then I'd come back and I'd say, you were freaking out out there. And they say, no, I wasn't. I'd say, I'd, I'd just press play. And you're like, everybody get up right now. <laughs> and no one's doing anything. And that makes everybody amped up and no one knows what's going on. And so that's how I would teach people, hey man, calm down, take a step back, take a breath before you key up the mic, before you start telling people what to do, make sure your, your mind is clear. So that's to me, as I look back again, breath, I never really thought about it in jujitsu. I just, if you don't calm down, you're gonna die. <laughs> you're gonna get crushed. And then in the SEAL teams, it was a matter of me and all SEALs not wanting to freak out and panic. Okay, so that means you need to take a breath to calm down, and that's what I did. So there was no formal training to do that. It just kind of happened. It then just makes me think about like recording confrontational, like customer customer uh, success or, or client management calls, like in business too, just to like play them back for someone because you may not realize how you're acting in the moment. For sure. For sure, we do a lot of, at, at Echelon Front, we do role-playing with people, with leaders, and I'll be the defiant, young, arrogant, you know, subordinate that's mouthing off, and how do you handle that? Or I'll be the boss that's coming in and yelling and screaming, how do you handle that? Or I'll be the peer that thinks you're doing it the wrong way, and they're super emotional about it, or they came up with a plan, and you're going against their plan, and they're all getting wild. We do, we do that stuff all the time, because just like jujitsu, there's moves that you can do to get people to calm down, start to listen to what you're saying, start to move forward in a, in a positive way instead of just escalating the situation and having an emotional blowout on both ends. What, what's one of those, is there a common first thing you do when someone's coming at you in that regard? Well, here's one that I, I teach and I, put, I wrote, wrote about this in the book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics, which is, um, I call it reflect and diminish. So if you come to me and you're all angry about something and your, your, your voice is elevated and you're starting to get emotional about something. Well, if I just say, Hey, you need to calm down. That that's not, that's not a move, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't help. In fact, now what I just did was created a divide between you and me. And now you think I'm on the opposite team. You know, I'm opposing you because you, you don't even, you know, you're thinking, I don't even understand how important this situation is. So what I do is I, I reflect some of your emotion. So you come in, I can't believe the ops team didn't get this stuff delivered on time. I don't say calm down. Instead, I say, are you serious? How late is it? So I show you some of that same emotion that you're showing me, 
but I diminish it a little bit. So I reflect some of your emotions, but I d- diminish it a little bit. So now you, you think to yourself, oh, cool, Jocko's on my team. He's gonna help me here. We're together, and now we can start talking through a solution. So there's an example of like an actual move that you can do to, to get through these situations. That's awesome. So you, you apply, I mean, the proof's in the pudding. So you, you have a clothing business, Origin. You have a supplement business, Jocko Fuel, and the, the Jocko products. You run a successful podcast. You have a training academy now called Extreme Ownership. How do you prioritize and execute on your day with all of this going on? How do you know what to focus on first? Um, I, I guess I'll start there. I have more questions around this. Yeah, this is, people ask me, well, how do you know run all this stuff? It's, it's, it's the book, Extreme Ownership. It's the four laws of combat leadership. Cover, move, simple, prioritize, and execute, decentralized command. That's how everything works. That's literally how everything works. That's, you know, you, you were talking yesterday about your event that, that, that is being put on and all the things that happen, and it's, it's a big deal, right? You know, you have um, well, a thousand people coming, and there's a lot to do and a lot to organize. We put on an event called the muster. We do it two or three times a year. And I show up to the event. I barely even know what city I'm going to. I just show up and everything's ready. All the AV's ready and it's a two day event and the equipment's there and the meals are set and the go bags are ready and the schedule's organized and everything is done and I don't do anything. I don't do anything. I barely even know what's happening because my team does everything. It's decentralized command. We have products being released at Origin and I, maybe I do a taste test, maybe I, which we know might take of five or six iterations to get a taste the way that I like it, that it's approved of. But again, I did none of the formulation. I mean, I might talk about, hey, what are we putting in this? Or what, what, what gr- ingredients do we want in here that are gonna be, beneficial and have the most efficacy. Okay, but that's really broad. All the details, the label, the the testing, all those things, I don't do any of it. It's all decentralized command. Um, you know, I, I, I have a gym in San Diego. I mean, that thing runs itself. I have a general manager there, it's a partner of mine. It's, I, I, I have instructors there cleaning staff, front desk staff. I don't do any of it. I don't, don't barely even think about it. So the things that's all, that's all just decentralized command. Now, occasionally things come up that need attention and then I prioritize and execute. So, and it's all very simple. Everyone knows what, you know, like for the muster, my team at the muster knows that we want to put on the best leadership event possible. So it's funny, you were talking about registration yesterday and how long it can take to register. And we actually have that at my team. And this is not me, this is my team. They have like as a metric, how long people are have to wait to get registered the night uh, before the muster starts. And they want it in two minutes and 30 seconds. They don't want anyone waiting longer than two minutes and 30 seconds. So that's one of the things that they're tracking. Uh, and, and that's because everyone knows very simply, we want to put on the best event that anyone's ever been to. Not even just the best leadership event, event, the best event that you can show up to. We want there to be no 
that no negative thoughts enter your mind and think, oh, well, this could be smoother. This could have been, this is disorganized. I mean, what kind of a team would teach leadership and not be able to lead a, an, an event, right? So, mm-hmm. so that's how all these businesses are run. They're run by cover and move, simple, prioritize and execute and decentralize command. So just out of curiosity, how do you give recognition to your leaders on a job well done? You would have to get confirmation from my leaders on what I do when they do a good job. Usually, maybe if I remember, I'll give them a fist bump and a head nod and say, I usually won't say anything. I, I, I'm known for never saying anything when someone does good. So they all, they all laugh about it. But uh, Jamie Cochran, who's my chief operating officer, she's the one that said, you know, when the muster and she's, she runs the whole muster, she's in charge of all that stuff. And she says she knows when the muster's over and I walk past her in the hallway and I'll give her a half a smile and put out my fist for a fist bump. And she's like super stoked. She knows that it was good. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't, uh, I'm not, I'm not super, I don't think about it too much. So how do you then come up with the new products and businesses that you're, you seem to be always getting into? Like what's, you have to be thinking about that. In terms of, uh, you have you just recently wrote your, uh, a fiction book. I think the first adult fiction book. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've written ten books. Uh, you prioritize your time in in, in a very uh, obvious, efficient way. But so then, how do you balance with? And I hate the word balance, but like, how do you balance prioritizing your time with things you already have and thinking about a new thing? I prioritize my times on thinking about new things because once the plan is being executed, I don't need to bother with it anymore. And occasionally I do. Occasionally I might have to to take a look back if something's not going the way we thought it would go or there's some lack of efficiencies there. Maybe I have to take a step back, but most of the time I'm looking forward, looking up and out. That's kind of, that's kind of what I do. We were talking last night a bit about your your writing and how you got into to fiction writing. Would you find that as like your one of your main creative outlets outside of jujitsu? And yeah, I mean, I'd say it's you know writing stuff like that is definitely good and and enjoyable. Um, you know, I have a I have a band. We play rock and roll music, and it's all original. We don't cover anything, so I think I get to go pretty creative in there. And, you know, even my podcast, even, yeah, my podcast is to me is very, it's an opportunity to talk and, and, you know, I write for my podcast or at least outline things that I know I'm going to talk through on my podcast. So I think that's a good one and jujitsu. Yeah. So those things are probably my, what'd you say? Creative outlet. Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say those are my creative things. Guitar. Yeah. So, so do you sing too? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, do you guys play anywhere? Uh, no. Yeah. Are, are you going to? Yeah, we always talk about it. But, you know, normally the neighbors or whoever comes by and, and you know, the, the wives show up and they yeah. get to watch. So is it a neighborhood yeah. band? Yeah. Yeah. I had one of those before. It's fun. <laughs> so I, So then... Is there anything else you do for fun? Surf. How often do you do that? 
whenever there's waves. <laughs> so obviously now when you're uh, making a trip to Chicago. Yep. It hurts. Last question. So you, you're, you're pretty uh, infamous for taking a picture of your watch every morning and how early you wake up. What time do you go to bed? Just depends. Last night I probably didn't fall asleep until about 11.30 because the time zone changed. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I try and get to bed around 10, I guess. Well, thank you for spending the, the time here with, uh, with me today and answering all these questions. I thought we, uh, we covered a lot and you're, uh, you're an inspiration and um, just uh, love everything you're doing. Right on, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Almost There podcast. It is so great to have you again. If you haven't hit the subscribe button, please do. That is such a great way to support the show. Also, another great way is to share this content with someone. Undoubtedly, there is someone out there that can get something out of these podcasts. And you sharing them being an ambassador means more to us than anything. Also, your feedback is always welcome. So please leave it either in a review or on our website at notalmostthere.com. Thank you again for being here. And we look forward to an amazing year ahead. Have a great and awesome, productive week.